Acts 18, verses 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancreae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. How are we doing this morning? All right, it's good to hear both of you who replied to that. We're glad you're here hanging out with us. What a good day to be together. It's always a good day on Sunday to gather together, to worship and wrestle with the scriptures, and to, to, to lift our chins to see the great God of heaven and earth and the story of the cross and, and, and our hope in the gospel, right? Um, how many of y'all like Cheez-Its? Cheez-Its, the, the, the cracker. I, I know we love Jesus in here. Well, Cheez-Its, do you like Cheez-Its? That's, that's a good snack cracker, right? Uh, there's all kinds of cheeses. You have, you have like the white cheddar, the normal. I, I, I personally think that, that just the straight up cheddar cheese Cheez-It is the best one. I like the white cheddar Cheez-Its, right? Uh, they now have Cheez-Its Puffs. Anybody tried those? You know, as a snack cracker, you, you just can't go wrong. It's better than goldfish. Personally, I've had my fill of goldfish, but I like Cheez-Its. Uh, Cheez-Its can be a good thing, uh, but, but they can be mistaken for something else. My uh, son, who is playing the drums this morning, his name's Josiah, when he was a little guy, he went to his uh, babysitter, uh, and his babysitter caught my wife's attention and said, she's just laughing. She said, you're not going to believe what happened. Uh, she said, I had Cheez-Its for snack. And Josiah looked at, at me and said, oh, I love Cheez-Its. Would you like some Cheez-Its, Josiah? Oh, yes, I love Cheez-Its. Good, I'm excited. I'm really glad that you love Cheez-Its. He said, I really, really love Cheez-Its because Cheez-Its died on the cross for me. <laughs> and, and we were like, uh, all right, we got some work to do, right? We got, a, got some adjustment in our theological understanding to do with our four-year-old, all right? Uh, it, it, it might be a problem if he keeps believing that it was Cheez-Its who died on the cross. Uh, and so we had some doctrinal formation that we had to do with our four-year-old. We had, we had to teach him that it wasn't Cheez-Its, 
It was Jesus that the crackers are tasty, but they are not your savior, okay? Although sometimes uh, we can lean into some crazy things. And so uh, this morning we were talking about the fact that um, our doctrine, what we believe, really does matter. And it is important for the church and believers in Jesus to be diligent about teaching the, the core issues that are found in the scriptures and holding on to the true faith. That, that there is a way to start believing in Jesus that he ends up being Jesus. And, and while it might be tasty, he cannot save you. And, and so we need to be careful about doctrine and what happens so often. In fact, I've heard people say this. I've literally seen articles written that says, doctrine, come on, let's not talk about doctrine. First of all, doctrine is boring. You talk about doctrine, you're going to put us to sleep. You know, inspire us, challenge us. Let's get gifted people who are just really good at making us feel excited about the faith. But the second thing I keep hearing is that doctrine divides. That when you when you preach doctrine, when you stand up and teach about doctrine, that that what that does is automatically divides people because you know when you hold a certain set of beliefs and you hold them firmly, it means that those who don't agree with you, you believe that they're wrong and that you're right and all that kind of stuff, and therefore doctrine divides. The truth of the matter is there is a level of truth to that. There is a level of truth to the fact that when we hold to certain doctrines, certain ideas, certain core theological beliefs as a a people of God, as a church, that those beliefs are going to both define us, but they are also going to help us determine what it looks like to truly follow Jesus, hold on to them, and it will define who doesn't. And so, uh, man, I get it. When we say we're going to stand up here and talk about doctrine today, I get where there's a little bit of eye rolling, a little bit, oh, here we go. But I want you to understand that there is something going on in this text that reminds us of the shipwreck that happens when we are not careful and diligent about doctrine. And I'm thankful for Aquila and Priscilla who took this young preacher aside and said, man, what you're teaching is right, but it's not whole. Let's make sure that you get this right. That's kind of the big idea this morning. We want to show from this story the importance of doctrine and theology in our discipleship and to show how we as a church go about this and how you as a believer can deeply believe in the true faith. We do believe that there are core tenets of the faith that if you don't believe those and if we don't develop these in you, you may call yourself a Christian, but you are not authentically following Jesus. And they can end up with you just a degree off here, but way off at the end. And so there are certain things that that it takes godly people who will invest in the lives of other people, the true faith, and just say, man, we need to tweak this. We need to adjust this. We need to understand the true thing. And that's what happens in this story. There's this young man named Apollos. We're going to talk about him in a few minutes. Uh, And and then this, this couple who are traveling with Paul, they're not preachers. They're not teachers. They're tent makers. They're just people who feel like God has called them on mission, but they have a job. They have a, they have a business that they are running, and, and so they are part of the church. They're not the pastors. They're not elders. Uh, it's a godly uh, woman and a man. It's really interesting, by the way, as you read the New Testament, that most of the time Priscilla is listed first, which actually is kind of upside down in the world the way you would do it. Most of the time you would name the man first and then the woman in Old Testament or in Bible culture times. The fact that she's named first probably is an indication that when it comes to teaching and leading and that sort of thing, she may have been the stronger personality and had more giftedness in that area. But, but the bottom line is you have this woman and this man who invested this young preacher 
and it changes things significantly. And so, so we're going to look at that through the story. Now, this, uh, if, if you haven't been with us, we are looking at this amazing book that is called the book of Acts. Acts is part two of a prequel sequel. This man named Luke writes two books. The first one looks at the life of Jesus and tells us the story of Jesus coming into the world, dying, uh, living his life, dying on the cross for our sins. We get our understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for us through Luke's gospel. And then the sequel is the book of Acts, where now Luke is going to tell us what happened to the people who, who knew Jesus, who interacted with him, and how did this central message, the central truth of the Christian faith, how did it spread all over the world? And so we're in the middle of a section here where Paul has this guy named Paul, who Christ rescued and redeemed miraculously, a Jewish man who hated Christianity, becomes a follower, the most passionate follower of Jesus in the first century, he is going all over the Roman and, and, and Greek world preaching Jesus and planting churches. And he is, in our story this morning, he is coming to the end of what we call his second missionary journey. He will take three major missionary journeys and then kind of a fourth one. We'll explain that a little bit later in the next several weeks, why I say kind of a fourth one. But he goes on these three major missionary journeys, visits like all over Turkey, modern-day Turkey, all over modern-day Greece. Uh, his goal is to end up in Rome eventually. And he is going from town to town, planting, preaching Jesus in, in the, both the synagogue among Jews and in the marketplace with, with those who are Gentiles. He is then seeing people come to faith in Jesus, and from there he is pl they are planting churches, which means they, this is a community of faith that comes together, people who've been transformed by the gospel. And the story this week, though, takes a little bit of an excursus. So we, we have the story starting with Paul in Corinth, but it takes a little bit of an excursus as the shift, the, the focus shifts from Paul to this moment with this one guy named Apollos and these two people who invest in his life. And Luke is, Luke is wanting us to see something that is very important in this story. And that's what we're going to focus on. But to get there, let's talk about the actual text itself. Let's talk about what goes on. Because in this week's text, we ended last week with Paul in this crazy city of Corinth. Uh, it's a, a seaport. It was a very decadent, broken, very sexualized city. And Paul ends up spending almost a, a, a year and a half and maybe even a little more in this city. After he plants the church, he actually stays to be their church planting pastor something he hadn't normally done, but now he does this in Corinth. The church is growing like crazy. The Lord is blessing it. But they get brought, Paul and, and some of the leaders of the church get, prop, bought, get brought before this guy named Gallio, who is the governor of that region. He's a significant person in Roman history. Uh, and his post, like he is a major political leader at that point in time. And, and they bring, the Jews bring Paul in front of this guy, hoping that he will issue a judgment that says Christianity is illegal. But the Jews get just the opposite. They get Gallio going, I, this doesn't have anything to do with me. As far as I'm concerned, Christianity and Judaism, the same thing. You're just two parts of the same group of people. He issues kind of a verdict that says the Christian faith is at this point in time an acceptable faith in the Roman Empire. They end up beating up this guy named Sosthenes that I showed you last week. He later becomes a follower of Jesus and starts traveling with Paul. And Paul stays for quite a while longer in that city, which is in ancient Greece, 
about 40 miles west of Athens. But the story this week picks up with Paul leaving there. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer <clears throat> from, and, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So, so what we learned is that Paul leaves the city of Corinth and now he is going to head home for the end of his missionary journey. Now we've been using a map to help us. We will have a new map next week because Paul, even in our Texas week, starts his third journey. But this week we'll focus on this one. It started up here in this, this place called Antioch. Okay? And what happens uh, from Antioch, there's Antioch right there, is he traveled through what is modern-day Turkey. He ends up getting to Greece, Macedonia, and Achaia are the two kind of states that are part of the Greek empire and, and the Greek nation. And so he goes through Macedonia and hits all these cities like Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea. He ends up coming to Athens, which is right here. And then he ended up, ended up in Corinth. And our story picks up with him in Corinth, leaving, getting to the seaport on the, uh, the uh, eastern end of this, this port, hopping on a ship and traveling to this city right here, which is Ephesus. There is a seaport here in Ephesus. It is a major, major city. We're going to talk quite a bit about this city next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time telling about Ephesus other than it is another major city. And then he is going to hop on a boat very quickly and head back to Caesarea here, which is the seaport for Israel and Syria. He's then going to go down to Jerusalem, and then he's going to make his way back up to Antioch. That's what happens in the story with Paul. But let's look at what takes place in the story here as this happens. Verse um, 18 again. At, at Century, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Now that's really weird, because here we have Paul coming to this place uh, on the coast, getting ready to board a ship, and he goes to see his barber. He gets a haircut. Why would Luke tell us he got a haircut? Uh, you know, I... I like getting my hair cut, but I, if I'm writing uh, about Scripture, like if I'm writing a story of, of uh, the ministry here at Genesis, I'm not going to pause and tell you about my haircuts. It's not that big a deal. But in this case, Luke wants us to know that Paul did something that was very Jewish. He took a vow that is from the Old Testament. It's called the Nazarite vow. Uh, it, the story or the ex explanation of the Nazarite vow is in Numbers chapter 6. Uh, and, and he takes this vow... This vow was made for the purpose of dedicating yourself to God for a season of life. Uh, it included growing your hair out, not letting a razor touch your head, not letting a razor touch your beard, uh, but letting all your hair grow out for a season. And it included the avoid, avoiding anything that was alcohol or even came from the grape. So, so no wine, no drink, no, no grape juice, nothing like that for a season as you dedicated yourself to the worship of God, it included, you know, scripture reading and prayer and things like that. And normally people would take the vow either during an intense time of seeking and hoping to know the will of God, the purpose of God, or they would take the vow uh, because they had seen God's grace and blessing in their life. And we're not told in the text which one it is. It could be because uh, that this decision by Gallio was a sign of God, God keeping a promise to Paul which he did. It could be because he had seen the fruitfulness of the ministry in Corinth and he was overwhelmed. It could be because he was trying to figure out if he should stay or if he should leave. We're not told. We're just told that he made a vow and this is a season of dedication, but it's a very Jewish thing to do, which is interesting because as we've been reading the story of Acts, 
Paul has been telling people they do not have to follow Jewish traditions and laws in order to be right with God. And this was a law or, or uh, something in the scriptures that it wasn't even for everybody. There was nothing that said everybody ought to eventually do a Nazarite vow. But he very specifically did something that was rooted from his heritage and his faith and his Jewishness as he then makes a vow and he cuts his hair. But why does Luke include this? Because this puts a timestamp. This is where the story gets a little weird because what would happen is you would cut your hair and then you would keep your hair. You wouldn't let it fall on the floor and let the person sweep it up and throw it in a wastebasket. You would keep your hair and you would take it and you had 30 days to get to Jerusalem. Uh, and when you got to Jerusalem, you would go to the temple and as part of a thanksgiving offering, you would throw your hair from your beard, from your head, from your head that had grown out, you would throw that hair onto the altar as part of a thanksgiving offering for God being faithful to you during your season of the vow and for your worship and honoring of God. And so he's about to get on a boat. He's now got 30 days to get to Jerusalem. It tells us why when he gets in the middle of the story, he, he tells the people in Ephesus, I can't stay. But what happens is that after taking this vow, he hops on a boat, boat he gets to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. From Ephesus, he then... Uh, goes to the synagogue, which is what he always does, preaches Christ, but from the synagogue, they beg him, stay with us. And his response is, I can't. We know why. He, he has made a vow, and he is going to fulfill with the Lord what he has vowed to the Lord. He feels like it's time for him to go home. It's time for him to go back to Jerusalem and see the brothers and sisters in Christ there. It is time for him to get back to Antioch, which is his missionary sending church and church family, and he's going to get back to them. And so he just feels like he is called to do this. So he, he stays just shortly, gets on a boat, but now we have already the movement of a church, and in the middle of it is this, in this new baby church is this beautiful couple who we already know they were forced to leave their home in Rome because of Nero. Now they have come to uh, Corinth and they've set up shop, started their business and got it going. And they're probably a wealthy couple. They're probably partially funding what Paul's ministry is going on. But they have left everything to travel now they are staying in Ephesus to help this church get healthy. And while they're there, uh, as part of this story, this guy named Apollos shows up. So look at verses 24 through 28 again. Because this is where we're going in our sermon this morning. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke... Uh, and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so, so what's going on here? What's happening? Well, you have this guy named Apollos, and uh, he is a Jew who is from Alexandria, and, and he's apparently, both from this text and a few other passages in the New Testament, what we really discover is that this boy can preach. This boy is, is eloquent. He is a, a speaker. He is a great rhetorician. He can get in front of a room of people and compel them. Man, he has, he has this amazing 
gift of preaching. He, he can get into arguments and debates and his just skill at that, he can kind of refute and he's, he's, got, he's strong in this area of called, that we call apologetics, which is making a defense of the faith. He's able to stand clearly in the midst of arguments, but he is able to proclaim his message clearly and it is compelling so that he is able to draw a crowd and get people excited about what he's speaking on. We're told that he's from Alexandria. Now, uh, no words in the Bible are just there for random purposes. Like, it would have been enough to say, here's Apollos, he's a good preacher. So why Alexandria? Well, the answer is because Alexandria at this point in time has become one of the most significant seats of learning and education in the entire world. Uh, you may have heard of the Library of Alexandria. If you've never heard of it before, Nicholas Cage found it in the treasure in National Treasure, okay? So, so we now know it's buried underneath Wall Street somewhere. But uh, the, the, the Library of Alexandria was a, a world-famous library that was known because of the learning and education that was going on in its, its collection of works. Now realize, they're not doing books. It's scrolls upon scrolls upon scrolls so that people you know, had access to information and knowledge. It was both a center of both Greek and Jewish education and philosophy and culture. And, and in the first century, one of the contemporaries, Jewish contemporaries of Jesus was a man named Philo, Philo of Alexandria, who is one of the three or four most significant thinkers in, in the Jewish thought and life in all of history. It, it's possible, really possible, that, that Apollos had learned from this guy named Philo in Alexandria. What we learned is he is a highly educated, very gifted individual. He, he's been, like, on our level, he has been seminary trained. He has gone through all the works, but it's rooted in his Judaism, and that's, that's kind of what's going on in the story. Uh, he didn't necessarily hear about Jesus in Alexandria. We're not sure, but somewhere along the line, he had been instructed uh, in, in the, way, things, the way of the Lord. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was fervent in spirit, and he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. What's going on here? So what you have is this guy who is gifted, a gifted preacher. He, what he is saying about Jesus is accurate. It's just not complete. He, when it says that, that he only knew of the baptism of John, it's speaking of this guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing people before Jesus shows up in the story, saying the Messiah is close, he is near. John's whole ministry was, it's not me, it's the one who's coming right after me. And then it is John the Baptist, who is also Jesus' cousin, who identifies Jesus for the first time for his ministry as he baptizes Jesus. But the entire ministry of John was a message to Jewish people that said our Messiah is at hand. He is there. We've been waiting for thousands of years for this promised one person, and there he is. And so John's ministry had been pointing to Jesus, but since, since uh, Apollos did not know, only knew of John's baptism, did not know that the end of the story, Jesus tells the disciples of Christ to go baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what this is probably referring to is the fact that Apollos may have known that Jesus was resurrected but he is not quite understanding 
all that that means and how people come to faith in Jesus and how that faith transformation should take place, that we are justified not by being Jewish or by keeping rules, but we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He has something that is missing in his understanding of Jesus, and therefore it is showing up a little bit in his understanding of what people need to do. And so he's not calling them to repent and trust in Jesus and therefore be baptized. And I love what happens in the story. So his doctrine where he had it was right. It was just not complete. Now, now this helps us because we, we also need to realize that what happens so often is that we will look at somebody who can preach. They, they, they used to say, like this was kind of the old southern or the small town way. They would say, you know, that boy can shut corn. Right? Which means that the boy can preach. That's, that's what's going on here. This, this is a guy who, man, when he gets to the front room, he can preach. He's got these incredible gifts. But his discipleship had not caught up with his giftedness. His discipleship had not caught up with his giftedness. This happens a lot in church. We'll take somebody who's young, and man, they are super gifted, and we will get them on stage, and they will start preaching, and they will start being overwhelmed by the success of their preaching, and next thing you know, they got a big platform, a big church, but they're teaching all kinds of things that are just like, you hear me, you're just like, eh, close, just not quite, and the size of the platform then feeds some things that if the gospel isn't fully formed in a person can feed ego and they feel like, hey, look at my crowd. I have a crowd that proves that what I'm saying is true. And the next thing you know, you end up with these people who are super gifted with massive followings, who have giant Twitter accounts and giant Facebook accounts and they, they are uh, Instagram and man, everybody checks them out on all these social media sites. They, their podcast has a million listeners and what they're doing is they're talking about Jesus. Meanwhile, they're leading people down a path to Cheez-Its, not Jesus, right? They, they don't have a, they end up with a, a little bit, just a little bit skewed, a little bit different Jesus. This actually happened in our tribe this week. There's this new campaign called He Gets Us. It's a very interesting thing because it's everywhere. They've bought a Super Bowl commercial. And it's going to raise interest about the person of Jesus. But what, if you go read their website and all the stuff that is on there, they say a lot of things that almost strip Jesus of his deity and make him a, make him a really good model to follow, but not a savior to turn your life over to. Now, I don't know where they're going with this. I'm just saying there are some red flags going up going, mm, what you're saying is it's right, but it's not, it's not everything. And so, what happens in the story that is so beautiful is you have this Christian couple who are you guys. They're just loving people who love Jesus, who traveled with Paul and are invested in the church and are going to stay in Ephesus and they're making tents Monday through Friday, selling, having a business, being good business people in the world. But now they go hear this guy Apollos preach and they're like, man, we're compelled. He's amazing. Something is just off. And what do they do? It says they take them aside. They don't, in front of the room, call them down. There are places when people are teaching false doctrine, there is a time to publicly denounce. But in this case, the issue wasn't false doctrine. It was that his knowledge of Jesus was incomplete. His discipleship did not match his giftedness. And so what they do? They disciple him. They do the work of disciple in the area of doctrine. 
See, when you become a follower of Jesus, there's kind of these three areas. Just get this. Three areas where you need to be growing in your faith. You need to be growing in your doctrine, the things that you know. We need to increase in our understanding of, of who God is, who Jesus is, how the gospel saves us, what the scriptures are. Like, we need to grow in this. You, if you are a follower of Jesus, need to be growing in your understanding of who God is. Then there is the part of us that is our character. There needs to be growing transformation in what it looks like that we follow Jesus, that we love Jesus more, we love our neighbor more, that we're living in holiness, that there is a transformation in our uh, character uh, and, and, and the, the, the inner person that we are. And then there is a transformation in our activities. We begin to do things like uh, be on mission and go serve and go share my faith. We become more active in giving and my generosity. So there are things to know, there are things to be, there are things to do. And if I pull any one of those pegs out, something like my, my discipleship, your discipleship, is not going to be complete. And what we have here is a guy who, in, the, in his character, and the things that he was doing, man, he was dead on. But there was something off in the doctrine, in the knowledge, in the things that he knew. And as a church, what we want to do is we want to invest in all three of those areas. There are a lot of places where the discipleship today is really focused on a transformed character and changed habits. And they're running from teaching the deep truths of doctrine. And it creates a massive problem. It is the problem that this text is trying to help us wrestle with. And so what, Anna, uh, what uh, uh, Anna, not Ananias and Sapphira, I got the wrong, wrong people written in my notes here. Uh, what this couple does, a brain lock. <laughs> Aquila and Priscilla, see I should know that. They're so cute, their names rhyme. It's pathetic. What Priscilla and Aquila do is they take him aside and they invest in his discipleship. Charles Spurgeon once said this, that a mist in the pulpit will create a fog in the pew. They knew if this guy keeps preaching a mist, that it's going to end up with people who are passionate about what he's saying, but straying from maybe knowing the true faith. And I love the outcome in the text. Verses 27, 28 tell us that what happens is after he gets discipled, after they invest in his life, they make sure he knows what the baptism of Christ is about, what it looks like to truly repent and follow Jesus. They have the whole Jesus invested in his life that he is now going to be able to go wherever the Lord calls him and be used greatly. And he decides he's, that, that the Lord has called him to go back to, uh, basically back to Corinth. He's now going to go, like Paul goes east, He's going to go west, go back to Corinth, and go hang out there. And for a while, he's going to preach and teach in the city of Corinth. His ministry is significant. He follows up in Paul. Eventually, Paul is going to write a letter because that church is so blessed by his ministry that they end up with, like, teams. They end up with the Apollos team and the Paul team. People are saying, man, I like Apollos' preaching. He's amazing. I like Paul's theology and the way he discipled us. And Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, writes a letter and goes, man, we're on the same team. We're on the Jesus team. Quit picking side. If Apollos is there preaching, come listen to him. Be challenged. If I come back to you, uh, we will lead. And, and the whole church, it's not about the leader. It's about Jesus. And let's be, all be on his team. Let's not choose size. But his ministry in Corinth had great fruit and success. That's the outcome of doctrinal discipleship in the passage, and Luke is pointing this out. There, there was recently a study that was performed 
by Lifeway Resources in Ligonier Ministries. They wanted to ask the question, what is the state of theology in our country and in the evangelical church? And so they did a massive study. First question is like, what are your core beliefs? And, and they were trying to identify the people who were not evangelical, so then they would just put them in the kind of the general population. But when they found out that somebody was an evangelical, let me define that term. These, these are churches that basically believe that Jesus is the only way, that people need personal conversion to come to faith. Uh, they, they belong to churches that are socially active and sharing the gospel and reaching people for Jesus, caring for the world. This is like this sort of thing. So you're talking about people like, you know, Baptists and a lot of Presbyterians and, 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 and quite a few um, non-denominational churches. I mean, people who would hold to a similar core beliefs that we tend to hold here at Genesis. But now they're not talking to pastors, they're talking to y'all. And as they did the study, the, the statistics I'm going to share with you are not what the general population, I would expect our world to be less and less clear about who Jesus is and their understanding. These are the responses that people who were part of churches like ours, how they answered just simple, clear, doctrinal questions. And I want you to pay attention to this. First question. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% of evangelicals agree with that statement. Now, what's wrong with that statement? The whole basis of the scriptures is a God who is eternal, who is sovereign, who knows the beginning from the end. Our God is not changing. He is not in process. He is not growing. God is God. He is absolutely perfect in all of his ways. He is not figuring it out as he goes. But almost half of evangelicals hear a statement and go, yeah, that's about right. Second statement, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% of evangelicals denied the basic tenet that is clear in Scripture that we were born in sin. That from birth we need a redeemer. That, that when Adam fell, we fell too. It's a central doctrinal truth. 65. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of believers absolutely denied the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ when they were asked. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of those who are claiming to be evangelical agreed with that statement. Listen, y'all, I love you, and if you're like, I agree with that. I love you enough to tell you that you are not a Christian. There are core things we must believe that point us to the true Jesus, the one who can save us, not Cheez-Its that will do nothing more than taste good for a few minutes, right? Last statement, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts and ancient myths, but is not literally true. 26% agree with that. The state of theology in American churches not in a good place. There is no fire, there is no passion, there is no, no life transformation. And I want to tell you it's because the church listened to people who said, stop preaching doctrine, it bores people and it divides. And here's why. Doctrine 
the core, amazing, deep, glorious truths of the Scripture is the fuel for your discipleship. It is. It's the fuel for your discipleship. It is, it is like I go in my backyard, we have like three different fire pits, which right now we can't light any of them because it's so dang dry, right? And so I have this fire pit that's covered by this camouflage tarp to keep it dry. You used to have a blue one, but it just looks stupid out there. So I got camouflage, now you can't see it. that wood will come out and I will put it in one of my fire pits. I will get it lighting. And now the wood is the fuel for the fire. Now get this. The wood is not the fire. The fire is what makes, like it's the energy that makes things hot. It's, it's, it's what I roast our marshmallows and our hot dogs over. It's what my wife sits really close to so she can be warm while I move away from because I'm always hot and she's always cold, so I'm thankful for a fire, right? The wood is important. It is not the fire, but without the wood, there is no fire. The wood is the fuel, and as as you keep that fire going, if you don't keep putting new wood, if you don't keep adding to that wood, the fire eventually is gonna dwindle and die out. Listen, doctrine is like the wood. You can get to a point in some Christian circles where what you have is a bunch of people gazing at wood piles going, isn't that beautiful? And that's a bad place to be. We can't end there. We can't say we're all about doctrine, it's all that matters. There is a lot of that going on in the church as well. What doctrine ought to do is it ought to create a fire as we see the glory of the one true and living God, the beauty of the gospel, the amazing nature of Jesus, as we see the, the, the smallness of our own lives and the brokenness of our sinfulness and the great salvation that has been provided by Christ. And we need to go deeper and deeper and deeper, but not just so that we can have bigger books on our shelves and more to argue about. It is so that it lights a fire of discipleship that will burn until each of us takes our last breath. Doctrine matters because it is the wood for the fire. Remove the wood and the fire goes out. So I've just told you what Christians in America believe. It is no wonder why we're being sucked down every wormhole and there's no fire in the church. Oh Lord, set us ablaze again with the great truths of the gospel. Listen, we must believe the testimony about Jesus, that the Old and New Testament is the revelation of God about his purpose and redemption, that when I pick up the Bible, it is the very word of God, and that he is telling us about himself, about me, and about his great salvation. We must believe in the identity of Jesus, that God chose to take on flesh. He is fully God. He is fully man. And his, the merging, the beautiful incarnation, the coming together of deity and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ is where our hope is, that I can't save myself, but oh God became one of us in the person of Christ to save us. We must believe fully in the uh, righteousness of Jesus, that he lived the perfect life that I should have lived, but his life was, is, is for my, he is my representative. So that when God looks at me and sees the filth that I am, he does not count that against me, but he has counted to me the perfection of Jesus. 
that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf so that I might become the righteousness of Christ. You give up on the virgin birth and the perfection of Jesus, the whole thing falls. You'll be with a group of people who talk about Jesus, but all they got is Jesus, y'all. Doctrine matters, but they're great truths. We must believe in the atonement of Jesus, that his death on the cross in my place for my sin is the only hope for my salvation redemption. That something cosmic happened on Good Friday and it changes everything. We must believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that on the third day, Jesus burst out of that grave, physically, bodily, rose again. And that his resurrection, his resurrection is the victory over everything that we fear. And every one of those statements I just gave you are cauldrons of truth that are deep and infinite. I could take any one of these and spend years just trying to flesh out the meaning of that and just skim the surface. And we need people like Priscilla and Aquila who will invest these truths in the life of people and give loving correction before we let people loose because they're gifted. And we, want, we need a church that will be intentional, intentional about investing these and the other truths into you as an individual. And so what I want to do is I want to spend the last few minutes of my sermon just telling you where we are intentional about doctrinal discipleship. Where we just want to keep throwing wood on the fire and hope that you'll avail yourself to the thing so that you will see the riches of Christ and the glory of the gospel and the beauty of God's purpose. We don't do these so that we can build big wood piles. We do it because we want the passion of Christ to fuel all that we are, okay? So where do we do this? First of all, we do it in Genesis Kids. We start when they're young. We change curriculums about, gosh, it's been eight or nine years ago, to this curriculum that's called the Gospel Project. The Gospel Project does several things so extraordinarily well with your children. First of all, it is, every lesson is about Jesus, about the Gospel. They keep the, the centrality of Jesus in everything they teach. And, and so they're focused on this, but they also, every lesson or every unit will focus on a clear truth a doctrinal truth from the Bible, from the story of God in the Bible, and we'll spend a whole month, anywhere between three and five weeks, you know, kind of digging down into that truth. In fact, the, the truth right now, for this morning, those of you who have kids, go talk to them about this at the end of the, this, the lesson. They're talking about the prophet Isaiah this morning. That's a really good place to go. And they're focused on this big picture question. This is how the, the material frames the theological issue they're talking about, the big picture question, what is repentance? The answer, repentance is turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. Now, here's why I love showing that to you this morning. You know what? This is probably the exact issue in his theology that Apollos had. Apollos had uh, this loving couple sit down and say, teaching Jesus is cool, but we've got to get to the point where people turn from the sin, trust in Jesus, and they're baptized, even if they're Jewish. Repentance is 
turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. The, the, the great truth of, of a theological issue. We're doing that with your children. Another way we do this is every week we have a family worship uh, uh, sheet that is available. It also posts both on Koinonia and on the Genesis blog that includes some material from the sermon uh, where I kind of write out some thoughts that I may or may not get to in my sermon, but it's just kind of some, some sermon notes on that. But the, the other half of this is we create a family worship experience. We are firm believers that we are coming alongside of you parents, not replacing you in this. In fact, I can tell you if the only place your children are getting doctrine is at church, they're not going to learn the doctrines of the faith. They need you to keep throwing wood on the fire and keep the fire burning and help them understand what it means to truly follow Jesus and, and to open things with them. And so this is one of the ways we do it. And one of the things we do is we use the New City Catechism. It's just a, a catechism is a, uh, a way for parents or anybody, a, a, a community group, to through question and answer, question and answer, to wade through issues of the, of the gospel and doctrines of the faith. And so uh, the, the way most catechisms are written is they will write a question and then give you an answer and then some scriptures that go with this. Believe it or not, the word that we get this from is in the text. Look real quick at verse 25. It's speaking of Apollos and it says, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That word instructed there is a Greek word, katakeo, that is saying somebody had sat him down and asked questions and did logical dialogue with him, investing the things of the faith in him. And that's what a catechism is. And so the New City Catechism, we love this, is 52 questions. One a week. We put it on the worship sheet every week. It's designed for you to go home and have this dialogue with your kids. This week's question, question number 42. How is the word of God to be read and heard? Answer, with diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith and practice it in our lives. We put this out every week because what we want to do every week there is, are things from the sermon, but there is also this moment with, with the New City Catechism. It goes out, this catechism question goes out on our Twitter account, Genesis Eureka, at Genesis Eureka, every week on Tuesday afternoon if you missed it on Sunday. And, and what we hope is that you will take this in for yourself, wrestle with it, teach it to your kids, talk to your family about it, the New City Catechism. A third, third thing we do is our gospel class. Those of you who are kind of new to Genesis, we want to help you, even as you are new to our church, and maybe if you're new to the faith, bring you in by sharing these deep truths with you. And so we have this intentional process. Anybody here who's a member has been through that. And those who are new, this is just an intentional process of making sure that we invest the true Jesus, the true gospel, the true faith into the people who are part of our church. We do this through our, our, our cohort called Leadership 222. Uh, it's based on 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul tells this young man, Timothy, who's one of his traveling companions, that what you've heard from me, invest in others who will teach others who can lead others also. In one verse, there are four generations of discipleship happening as Paul discipled Timothy, who's going to disciple others, who will disciple others. And the idea is that Paul's saying, listen, you invest these things in him. And our leadership too, too, is about raising up leaders, people who will then turn around and be able to disciple others. And we're starting, like our cohort started last month, but we're actually having our first meeting this week. And guess what? To their shock and dismay, one of the books we gave them was a theology book. They have to read theology. How boring is that? 
But we want to make sure that people leave this cohort and they get involved in leadership, community groups, or other, other leaders. They become core leaders of ministries. That they know the true gospel, the true faith. They, they do understand what it means to truly follow Jesus and know who he is. We do this through our preaching in community groups. There are doctrinal issues. We're going to preach doctrine and truths of doctrine when we're up here, and then we want you to go talk about them in group. I hope that this week you will have some conversation in your community group about why doctrine bores you and you don't want to hear it anymore. I hope you'll have a conversation about the importance of these core beliefs in your life and talk about what does it look like for doctrine to be the fuel for your discipleship. We do this through our worship and singing. Listen, I'm so thankful for Eric and our core team who leads our worship and our music each week because they know that maybe the best way to teach you doctrine is to sing songs where that doctrine shows up in music where it sinks deep in so that when you're in hard times or you have doubts, what comes to your mind is a song that we sang. We don't just sing cute little songs about Jesus here and there. Like there's times for us to lift our voices and, and maybe with simple repetitive lyrics, lift our voices in a way that we are praising. But we also need songs that teach theology because it becomes one of the most important things that can happen when we are struggling. We do have questions. Those of you who don't know, this has been a hard week in a Hubbard household. My dad broke his hip a week ago today, and his, med- his week medically has not been a great one. And uh, I sat and read James chapter 1 to him right before they were going to take him to surgery on Wednesday. So he heard the scriptures, and I prayed with him. I walk in the room yesterday, see my mom reading from Jeremiah to him. But he told my wife... Like she asked him, what was it like for you to kind of go to sleep and know, like just being sure? And you know what was going on in my dad's head? My dad who doesn't sing, he's terrible, just telling you. (laughs) My mom was like unbelievably gifted singer. My dad, it's, (laughs) you've got an amen from somebody who heard her sing when she was uh, in church. Sherry Overton back there went to church with my parents when she was growing up. My mom like toured singing. My dad, it's a monotone, always has been. And he sings that monotone sometimes loud. But it was a song. A song that my wife actually had shared with him. Not something he heard from Genesis, but a song that was in his head as they were putting him to sleep as the song singing, uh, a, a song that you may have heard on the radio by Mercy Me called Even If, where he is in his mind reciting the words, I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty head, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. We need songs that drive the truths deep, and so that's why we sing here. It's why it's important. It's why the songs we sing have meaning. We do this with our elders. You may not know this, but every month we got the big theology book and we pull it out and every month when we meet, we go through a chapter of the book and we talk about the core theological truths because we, we have to make sure that the men who lead this church are not going to end up in a ditch theologically. And, and so it's important here and it's important for you. So what does this mean for you? It means that I challenge you to avail yourself to the things that will keep putting wood on the fire. Buy books, read theology. You might just find that it's actually more fun than you think it is. Read people who are writing about Jesus and about God. If you're like, 
I, I, I don't know any. Call me. I, I can give you a suggestion in any area of great theological books. Listen to podcasts that talk about these things. I mean, it's great to listen to Seeing Red or some podcast about murders in the building. I love that stuff, okay? It's great. But maybe you should listen to a couple podcasts that make you think about, about the beauty of the gospel and the deep truths of the faith that throw wood on the fire. Be involved in the things here that help you with that. Maybe it, it may be that if your faith is growing cold, it's because you are not being challenged to see the great truths of the gospel deep enough. Doctrine is not the fire. It is the fuel. And we need to be careful that we keep extolling and exalting and glorifying the great things of God. There... The truths that we are talking about are so rich and beautiful. You will never get to the bottom of them. You will never exhaust an idea. You will ne- and the more that you delve into the deep truths of the person and work of Jesus, the Trinitarian God, the glory of the scriptures, the more it will fuel your desire to be a different person and change your habits. It is the fuel for the fire that is your discipleship. And so we do that here. So for you, what is, what is the right, how do we know if we're doing doctrine rightly? There are two clear responses. As the band comes up here, because they're going to help us with one of them. When we hear the deep truths of God, when we hear the great truths of Jesus, when we understand deeply who he is and, and grow in that, what will happen is the first thing, it will, it will do exactly what this text says, which is it will change our witness. We will want to let people know. Okay. And so, so the, the truths that then capture us will be things that we feel like we want to share. Is what Apollos does. The, now that he fully understands the gospel, he's got to go, and he's going to stand and strengthen the church in Corinth. He's going to refute those who disagree. He's going to preach Christ and make much of him. That is the first response. And the second response is doxology. It is worship. That, that if, if I am doing doctrine, and it is not turning my heart to see my smallness and glory and rejoice in the greatness of the God who created me, who loves me, and saves me. I'm just telling you, we're doing it wrong. Yes, I know there are people out there who do doctrine, and it becomes dead and cold. They are doing it wrong. True gospel, true doctrine will lift my heart off of me and see the glory of the God who saved me. And I will sing and worship when that happens. So folks, this is the exact reason why every single week I get done with my sermon. I've seen churches that the pastor gets done, he prays, and it's like, it's time to go. We got to get out of here. But we pause and we sing again because our response every week to the truth of the gospel is to lift our hearts in worship. And so we're going to do that together right now. We're going to sing to the Christ who saves us, to the God who loves us, together. We will be taking up an offering, and if, if you're part of Genesis, this is one of your ways of showing your discipleship, by being generous and giving back uh, to the Lord for the things he's done for you. And if you're here this morning and you are like new, you're like, I don't even understand doctrine. This just felt old and cold and dead. Listen, come have a conversation. We would love to pray with you and talk to you, because the Jesus we're talking about is so beautiful and so rich. He is so worth it. So let us have a conversation with you about who Jesus is. If you're here today and you just need prayer, maybe you're in a place where your life is just hurting immensely, let us, let us, 
gather, let us join with you and just spend some time praying over you and helping you. If you have questions, we will have people over here at the end at the, or at the end of the service. I'll be over here and would love to have a conversation about all of these things. But I'm going to pray and get off the stage and invite you to stand and sing songs that will lift your hearts as we see, sing the truths that are found in the scriptures. Lord, we love you, praise you for your word. Help us today to find beauty in the great truths. Thank you for Priscilla and Aquila investing in Apollos. It made a difference in the first century. And thank you for the people who have invested in my life in that way, who've helped me know the true faith, the true gospel. May we see that repeated over and over and over again. In your name I pray, amen.